think that sometimes we picture the Christian life as if we were driving a car. Okay, Picture this with me. We're, we're heading to whatever destinations we've decided upon for our lives. So maybe we're on the road driving towards becoming happy in our lives. Or we're heading towards becoming successful or maybe rich. Or we're, we're heading towards becoming fulfilled. We choose these types of destinations for our lives. Or more specifically, maybe, I'm heading towards a certain career path or a certain career. Or maybe we're heading towards having a family one day. We're looking forward to that. And then one day as we're driving along, we see Jesus on the side of the road. Okay, We see Jesus and we realize that we need Jesus. And so we stop the car, we roll down the window, and ask Jesus, Hey, you want to jump in the car with me? And it's like, I really like you, and I want you to be my God, and I want you to help me get to where I'm going. That's kind of like what the Christian life is like, right? Wrong! (laughs) Okay, I think we think that way a lot, but that's so wrong. Jesus doesn't jump into our cars, okay? It's more like we are invited to jump into his. Jesus doesn't follow us in our lives or come after us. We follow him. He's not a hitchhiker on the side of the road that jumps in and asks, so where are we off to today? He's the driver who tells us, this is where I'm going. Are you coming along? And sometimes, where he asks us to go, or what he asks us to do, is not that pretty. Oftentimes, doesn't fit our dreams, or our plans, or our goals in life. Would you believe me if I said that the calling, or the destination, of all true disciples of Jesus can be costly, difficult, dangerous, and even deadly. You won't hear that in a lot of churches. A lot of people will tell you that if you come to Christ, it'll make your life easier and happier. That's simply not true. Sometimes it may. Usually it won't. It certainly is not the picture of a disciple that we see in Scripture. Being a follower of Christ can actually be quite costly. It might cost us all kinds of things, from money to time to other things of life, in life that we value. It might even cost us our health, our security, and even our very lives. I want to show you this truth from Scripture today. So if you have a Bible, please take it and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. You have a pew Bible from in front of you. It's on page 867. We'll get you to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And I know that as we go to God's word this morning, I want God to work on my heart, and I pray and trust that that's your prayer as well, that he would work on your heart. So let's pray to that end this morning together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take your word this morning and plant it in our hearts that it would develop roots and it would grow there. We pray that you would open our eyes to see your truth and what it means to be a true disciple and follower of you. We get confused sometimes, God, and we get distracted, and so we pray that you would reorient reorient us this morning to your ways and your word. We trust for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, if you were with us, we've been going through Luke lately, a long journey through the book of Luke. And last week we saw Jesus withdraw from big crowds and lots of happenings with his disciples to the far northern part of Israel, to Caesarea Philippi in the base of Mount Hermon, which is where he rested and prayed and talked with his disciples, conversed with them. And during this time... He asked his disciples a very important question. We saw this last week in verse 18 in Luke chapter 9. It said, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. 
And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So in this, this story, Jesus was trying to determine where his disciples stood on his identity. Where did they stand on who he was? So the, the crowds think I'm a prophet, but who do you say that I am? And Peter actually got the answer right. And you're the Christ, or the Messiah, sent by God. But then, Jesus shocked his disciples with his next statement. Look how he continues in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So I am the Messiah, you're right. But contrary to public opinion, I'm not going to conquer Rome. I'm not going to lead an army or wear a crown. I'm actually going to die. That is where all this is headed. Prepare yourselves for it. Don't get people's hopes up for some other false Messiah. Realize that God is doing something great through me. That's where we ended last week. But Jesus wasn't done speaking yet. And so we come today to verse 23. And Jesus says this. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus basically said, okay, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to go die someday, and if you follow me, you're actually going to need to die. That's what he's saying here. This must have sent the disciples for a loop and a half. First, Jesus laid out all the correct expectations for himself. Don't expect me to do all these things. I'm the Messiah, and as the Messiah, I'm going to suffer and die. I'll be a crucified Christ. And then Jesus laid out what it would mean to be a disciple or a follower of a crucified Christ, of such a Messiah. If you follow me, you won't be soldiers in my army. Okay? If you follow me, you won't be advisors to a king. Don't expect fame or comfort or peace or even respect. You're going to be friends of a criminal. This job will not be glamorous. It's going to be dirty, it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be painful. But then he said, I promise you, it will all be worth it. When Jesus called his disciples, he told them to come and follow me. It's that simple. This is the heart or the essence of being a Christian or a disciple, that we follow Jesus. We listen to him, we learn from him, we obey him, and we emulate him in our lives. But what does Jesus really want from us as his disciples? What does a disciple look like? Well, that's what this passage shows us. It essentially shows us Jesus' own definition and description of discipleship. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, if anyone wants to call themselves a Christian, then let him or her do this. Some of us need to be told this for the first time. Others of us need a strong reminder. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Two major points for today. First of all, following the crucified Christ involves costly and daily self-denial. Following the crucified Christ involves costly and daily self-denial. Verse 23, and he said to all, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There are three commands here. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. The third one, to follow Jesus, really flows out of the first two. You follow Christ by denying yourself and taking up your cross. Now, I want to go into detail on these commands because I think that most of us find them confusing. There's a lot of vagueness around what it means to deny yourself or take up your cross. These are very familiar phrases that get tossed around a lot in Christian circles, and they become somewhat of a Christianese saying. But I don't know if these words mean what we think they mean. There are many theories out there about these commands of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Does denying yourself mean denying yourself coffee or chocolate cake? Does it maybe does it mean denying yourself any earthly pleasure on earth, even going so far as to become a monk or a nun? Some have interpreted it that way. What does this mean? Or does taking up your cross does it mean that you're you're needing to put up with your annoying relatives or coworkers? Or does it mean that we should be seeking to literally die for Jesus, seeking that out? Or is it something in between those? Today, we're going to try to cut through the confusion and the uncertainty and find the truth. What did Jesus mean when he told us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses? I'm going to give you what my best interpretation is as to what they mean. First of all, okay, so for denying yourself, following the crucified Christ involves costly and daily self-denial, which means denying yourself the right to live for yourself. Okay, self-denial means denying ourselves the right to live for ourselves. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It is a natural human tendency to try to live entirely self-focused lives. Babies aren't taught that life revolves around them. But they naturally feel that way. As they grow, one of the first indwelling sins that becomes visible is selfishness. Kids don't want to share their toys or their food with other people. Mine is one of the first words they learn very well. Mine. Like the Seagulls in Finding Nemo. (laughs) Mine? Mine? (laughs) And even though we eventually learn to share and to give to others, throughout life, we're still taught to look out for number one. Right? We still tend to look out for our own interests first, and then might think of other people. Then Jesus comes along and says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Going against our natural tendencies. What does this mean? How, how do we do this? What does it look like to deny ourselves? On an initial level, this is talking about salvation. Okay? We naturally think that we can do this life on our own without God. But that is a lie. We need God far more than we realize. Daryl Bach says this, that the essence of saving trust in God is self-denial, a recognition that he must save because disciples cannot save themselves, that life must be given over into God's care and protection. Have you given your life over to God's care and protection before? It's only because Jesus came to earth, went to the cross, and died and rose again that we even have this opportunity. But in order to be saved, we must deny our own self-righteousness and our own independence. We must repent of our sins, denying the temporary pleasures they offer and commit our entire lives to Christ, saying, Jesus, I need you, and I need you to change my life. 
If you've never done this before, I invite you and I implore you to do this today. Deny yourself. Trust in Christ for salvation. It's the only way. But a disciple's self-denial is much deeper than just salvation. It's actually ongoing. The Greek verb to deny here means to be self-forgetful, to forget ourselves. Philip Ryken says to deny oneself is to forget oneself entirely, to reject any thought of doing what will please ourselves rather than God. Instead of gratifying ourselves or indulging ourselves in all the ways our sinful nature desires, we are called to deny ourselves, rejecting anything and everything that will get in the way of offering ourselves for God's service. Here's the thing. This not only goes against our nature, this goes directly against the grain of our, how our culture tells us to live. What does our world say, or where does our world say to find true happiness? In indulging ourselves, right? Over and over again. Don't deny yourself anything good in life. Pursue it and indulge in it. Commercials and advertisements scream at us. Schools and jobs indoctrinate us. Friends and family pressure us. And then we end up coveting, envying, and desiring money, food, sex, drink, drugs, entertainment, clothes, homes, cars, vacation, and on and on and on. Why would you deny yourself any of these things? There's no reason to. To deny yourself Things is just stupid when they're there for the taking. You deserve that expensive holiday. You need that new pair of jeans. Everyone else has that new phone. Don't you want to be cool? You're missing out on pleasure and fun. Come on, just once. Indulge yourself. For Christians, there's a reason for us to deny ourselves, and it's really the only one that matters. Our Savior wants us to follow in his footsteps of self-denial. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce, or other versions say to deny or say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Christian discipleship is not about living the American dream. It's not about enjoying the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Christian discipleship is giving up our so-called rights to live for ourselves. Giving them over to God. Now this does not mean, don't get me wrong, this does not mean we can't enjoy the good things that God gives us in life. Not even close. Okay, God gives us many blessings that are meant for us to enjoy and praise Him for. What this does mean is that we live for Christ first, others second, and ourselves third. Our ambitions, pursuits, and goals should reflect that order of priorities. Our bank accounts should reflect that. Our calendars should reflect that. Our cupboards and closets and garages should reflect that. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for God and His glory in everything. And this is key. And when we deny ourselves the right to live for ourselves, we actually reflect Christ. He is not asking us to do anything that He didn't do Himself. Christ lived in persistent self-denial 
for us. He lived in persistent self-denial for us. Jesus denied himself so many things by coming to earth and dying for us. He denied himself the glories and the honor and the comfort of heaven for a time. He denied himself the pleasures of sin while on earth. He denied himself even life itself. In dying, he denied himself safety and protection from pain and life itself. He had a right to live however he wanted, and yet out of love, he denied himself. Remember what I said earlier, that Christian life is not Christ following us. It's us following Christ coming after him wherever he leads us. And as he spoke these words to his disciples on this day, what was Jesus heading towards? The cross. Guess what? True disciples follow him even there. To the cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean for us to take up our cross? Here's how I interpret it. Following the crucified Christ involves costly and daily self-denial, which means accepting the consistent cost of rejection or worse. Okay, Following Jesus involves accepting the cost of being rejected or worse. This is what it means for us to take up our cross. It means realizing... And accepting that we may be rejected like Christ was rejected. Jesus had just given his disciples the shocking prophecy that he was bound to die. And then he started talking about crosses. A violent execution tool used by Romans. And the disciples must have put two and two together and say, thought, that, okay, Jesus is saying he's dying and then he's talking about crucifixion. So does that mean that Jesus is going to be crucified? On a cross? And what's he saying? That that we're going to be crucified too? The answer is kind of. Not all the disciples were literally crucified. Most of them were martyred. Not all of them were crucified. Jesus was going to be the suffering servant, the rejected the Messiah, the crucified Christ. And true followers of his would be readily willing to walk in his footsteps wherever that led. And in this case, it was being willing to walk in his footsteps of being rejected. Taking up your cross was figurative here. It represented rejection as a whole. The same exact kinds of suffering would not happen to all the disciples. But suffering would come to them all. In one form or another. Now, some cheapen what it means to take up a cross by identifying it with pretty weak forms of suffering. You know, something like, I really want to eat that second hamburger, but my diet is calling me to take up my cross. (laughs) Or, my in-laws get on my nerves all the time, but I guess they're just the cross I have to bear. My boyfriend broke up with me, so I guess I just got to pick up my cross. My baby keeps waking up in the middle of the night. Pick up my cross. No! (laughs) Picking up your cross and following Christ is much deeper than that. It's actually suffering for Christ's sake. That's what differentiates it between other forms of suffering. Even greater forms of suffering like handicaps or disabilities or sicknesses are not crosses. Necessary. Norval Geldenheis says, The cross is not the ordinary human troubles and sorrows, such as disappointments, disease, death, poverty, and the like, but the things which have to be suffered, endured, and lost in the service of Christ. So any form of rejection or suffering we experience for the sake of Christ is our cross. And there's a wide range of possible sufferings there. If we're mocked, laughed at, scorned, or insulted because of our faith, 
take up the cross. If we're rejected by our families or our friends because of Jesus, take up the cross. If our Christian beliefs are called outdated, antiquated, or bigoted, If someone that you love starts to hate you because you love Jesus, take up the cross. If the government decides one day to arrest or imprison or prosecute us, take up the cross. If we are beaten, tortured, or killed for our faith in Jesus, We definitely do not have it bad here in Canada. We are blessed. But it may get worse one day. Be prepared for that? And if we're not suffering at all, not one iota for the sake of Christ, perhaps we're not truly living for him. Because if we stand up boldly and publicly for our faith, It will attract animosity. Guaranteed. As Christians, as followers of the crucified Messiah, we must be willing to be rejected. Or worse, we must be willing to die for the sake of Christ. If our commitment to Christ is not that deep, we should question whether we're following him at all. Because this is is Jesus' definition for his disciples. You're ready to die, or ready to suffer, and willing to die. We must be willing to suffer for Christ consistently, on an ongoing basis. Notice that Jesus says to take up your cross daily. Daily. Our faith needs to be more than just a Sunday morning faith. It's a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday faith. And if yours is not, then it's not true commitment to Christ. Again, Christ is not asking anything of us that he did not do himself. Christ lived and died in consistent rejection for us. He wasn't only willing. He did it. He lived it. He died it. In light of what Christ has done for us, how can we ever only be willing to do less for him? If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then it continues, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Trying to protect or save your life is basically the opposite of taking up your cross. It's not being willing to suffer or die for Christ, which is a sign that we're not saved. You see that? Since being rejected for Christ is a sign of a true follower, for they will be saved. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now this verse can be confusing to us, because think, well, is Jesus actually encouraging us to try to lose our lives? Does he want people to go out and seek martyrdom? Or that if no one's persecuting you, go out and agitate and provoke people until they do? Is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying that. This whole passage uses a lot of figurative language. And I know that Jesus wasn't saying to seek out literal, physical death for a couple reasons. First of all, he told his disciples to take up their cross daily, repeatedly. If he had wanted them to go out and actually get themselves killed on purpose, it would be a one-time command, right? (laughs) There's no coming back from that. (laughs) Secondly, just a couple verses later, in verse 27, he says this, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We'll get to what that means in a minute, but here Jesus clearly said that some of his disciples would not die. So he couldn't have had literal, physical death in mind back in verse 24. 
The fact is, there are many ways that we can lose our lives for Christ's sake. This is not only referred to martyrdom. It's speaking of a radical giving up of yourself for God and his kingdom. That's what it's talking about. No matter what kind of suffering or rejection that brings you. So, when we live for others instead of ourselves, it's a way that we lay our lives down. We put them first. When we give up our time to serve others, it's a way that we lay our lives down. Ministering to others in the church or in in a small group, by praying for others, or by serving the poor and mistreated and abused in our society, in Christ's name, no matter what it brings you. We lay our lives down when we give up our money to those in desperate need for it, instead of buying that new TV or couch or steak dinner. It's putting God and his kingdom above your own life and your own interests. Whenever we care more for God's kingdom than we do our own life, we lay our lives down. To hammer this point home, Jesus asked a rhetorical question in verse 25. He said, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The obviously implied answer to that question is nothing. Gain nothing. I want you to imagine today that you found out that you won $10 billion in the lottery. <laughs> you picture that? Okay. What would you do? Probably the very first thing you'd do would call work and quit your job, right? <laughs> Not working another day in my life. Just living at large. Then you'd buy a nice home for you and your family, or maybe a nice vehicle, or a nice car, or nice clothes. You go on nice vacations, and you have famous friends. You try to get in all the the upper circles of society. If you're single, you'd probably have members of the opposite sex fawning all over you. (laughs) If you live for yourself, this is what could happen. You'd have gained the world. Luxury, pleasure, fun, leisure, and relationships. But, think about this. What would happen is if as soon as you got all this, got your life all set up, you had a heart attack and died. Would you be better off than any of the rest of us schmucks working hard for a living? No. Wouldn't be. Death is the great equalizer. You profit nothing in death. If you gain the world and yet lose your soul, you gain nothing. If you live for yourself, eventually you will lose everything, including your body and soul. And yet if you live for Christ, you may lose your life, but your soul will be saved. And you'll be rich after death, which is when it really matters. The Christian band Switchfoot sings a song called The Loser, in which they sing, Only the losers win. They've got nothing to prove. They'll leave the world with nothing to lose. Do you leave the world with nothing to lose? You do. That's when you win by losing. If we are not willing to suffer for Christ, it's likely because in some way we're ashamed of him. And it's easy, I admit, it's very easy to be ashamed of him in the world that we live in. We don't want to be hated or reviled or mocked or even thought to be weird. So if speaking up for Jesus causes those things, then we'd rather stay silent. We'll try to follow Jesus, we will, but... We don't want anyone to know it. But that's being ashamed of him. Now look at these scary words in verse 26. 
It says, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Christ's displeasure is an eternal reason to not be ashamed of him. All these verses really run together with the same theme. That following or in the crucified Christ involves costly and daily self-denial. Denying yourself the right to live for yourself. Denying yourself the right to be liked. Denying yourself the right to have pride or to avoid embarrassment. If you deny yourself, you won't be ashamed of Christ. And if you're ashamed of Jesus, you'll never actually deny yourself. We've all failed in this before. I know I have. And yet even in the face of failure, there's grace. If we've truly trusted in Christ for salvation, we can have absolute confidence in God's grace for us. As 2 Timothy 2 says, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That sounds familiar. But then it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Just look at the lives of the disciples. Even at the crucifixion itself, they were ashamed of him. They denied him and ran away. But even as they were doing that, Jesus was dying to take away their shame. tend to look at this passage and we read it and it's sobering and I think we look at it somewhat negatively. We hear that we've got to count the cost and deny ourselves and maybe suffer and die and we think, wow, look at everything we stand to lose. Is it really worth following Christ? Is it really worth it? And indeed, the Christian life is not all fun and games. It involves self-denial and suffering. However, I think we need to totally change our perspective when it comes to this passage. Because there is an extremely positive undercurrent running throughout Jesus' words. There's a flip side to every negative coin. Yes, following the crucified Christ involves costly and daily self-denial. However, I believe we can also clearly see this truth. That following the crucified Christ will gain you everything of true value. Following the crucified Christ will gain you everything of true value. I keep saying the word of follow Christ's example by denying ourselves and going to the cross. But let me ask you, how did the ordeal of the cross end for Jesus? It didn't end in suffering and death, did it? It ended in resurrection, ascension, and glory. He endured much pain and shame, but why? For the joy that was set before him. Likewise, there is joy and much more promise at the ends of our roads of rejection. I believe this passage alone points out three things that we will gain if we follow Christ. First, we gain true life. Okay? We gain true life when we lay down our life for him. Abundant, fulfilling, rewarding life now, and eternal life later. That's the flip side of verse 24. It says, He says, Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Paradoxically, giving up your life here on earth will be what actually saves it. Second gain, we will gain Jesus' pleasure instead of his shame. This is the flip side of verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory, and in the glory of the Father of the holy angels. If you're not ashamed, though, what happens? Jesus won't be ashamed. He'll be pleased with us. 
Now, we can never earn our pleasure, his pleasure on our own. But because Jesus lived a perfect life and pleased God in his life, we too can please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But with faith, it's possible. Third game. We will gain God's kingdom and its accompanying benefits and rewards. This is probably the most astounding gain of all, and why Jesus said in verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus talk about his coming kingdom here? To give his disciples hope. That's why. He just said, if you follow me, you'll lose many things, maybe even your life. But take hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel. There is a kingdom that is coming that will blow your minds. Now Jesus said here, it's kind of confusing. He says that some of his disciples wouldn't die until the kingdom came. But all the disciples died. And Jesus didn't return before they died. He still hasn't. So what gifts? Well, first of all, we assume that Jesus' kingdom meant his coming back to earth, meant his return to earth. But I think, we especially think that because of the previous verse that talks about that. But I think that's wrong. That can't be what he's talking about here. The kingdom will indeed come in a finished form when Jesus returns. However, in other key ways, the kingdom of God has already come. It's already here. Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you, or within you. Next week we're going to see Jesus give his disciples a visual preview of the kingdom in his transfiguration. But more than that, more fully, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom when he died and rose again. And then when he ascended back to heaven, he officially took his crown and his throne. Almost all the disciples lived to see these events take place. And so it was true that I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Think about this for a minute. Do you realize what this means for us? The kingdom is both now and not yet. This means that there are future Future, eternal, astounding rewards waiting for us one day. Eternal life, heaven, bliss, glory, rewards we can't fathom. But this also means that some of the kingdom's benefits are already here. The disciples saw them come. We can experience and enjoy aspects of the kingdom of God already Now, God has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell believers, giving us his power. Power to fight sin, power to pursue holiness, power to overcome spiritual warfare. He has given us his church as a family where we can love and be loved. He's given us abundant life now, filled with opportunities to glorify God. He's given us supernatural peace, joy, and love his Holy Spirit. Fruits of the Spirit. If we lay our lives down for Jesus' sake, we will gain everything of true value. What really matters. So yes, the cost may be high, but the rewards are far higher. Lose something, we gain everything. I was made aware of a news story this week that brought this passage to life. Told the story of Asia Bibi, a poor Christian wife and mother of five from Pakistan. Many of you know 
Islamist Pakistan is not very friendly to Christians these days. And then one day in the hot summer of 2009, Asia went to work with a group of large or a large group of women to pick berries in order to earn some much-needed money for her family. They're poor, and so she went to work for them. As the day went on, the heat was suffocating and unbearable. Asia said that it was like working in an oven. They're sweating profusely. And so she made her way over to a nearby well to get some water. And she pulled up a, a bucket of water, filled a cup, and took a deep, cool drink of the water. But as she drank, and then she handed the cup to the next woman in line, someone shouted out, Don't drink that water! It's haram! Which means forbidden by God. And why was because a non-Muslim had touched it. This woman who had shouted, then loudly declared that no one else could drink the water because a Christian had contaminated it by drinking from it. Asia dared to simply say, I think Jesus would see it differently from Muhammad. The woman didn't take very kindly to that. And immediately began raining down insults on her, calling her names I won't even repeat here. But you're just a filthy Christian. How dare you speak for the prophet? You should just convert to Islam and redeem yourself. And on and on. As you said, she wrestled between silently taking the abuse or defending herself. Finally, she decided to just make one quick comment of defense. And she said, I'm not going to convert. I believe in my religion and in, in, in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the sins of mankind. What did Muhammad ever do to save mankind? And why should it be me that converts instead of you? And that's when all hell broke loose. All the women started screaming and shoving and spitting and kicking Asia. Asia was able to escape that day and run home. But a few days later, an angry mob came for her, yelling as they marched down the street, Death! Death! Death to the Christian! Asia feebly called out to them, Let me go, please. I haven't done anything wrong. But the crowd would have none of it. Grabbing and dragging her away, she was beaten violently on the way to the village imam's house. The imam quickly agreed with the mob and gave Asia the choice to either convert to Islam or die. Guess which one Asia chose? She was then handed over to the mercy of the mob, she was beaten with sticks, was nearly unconscious when the police arrived. Police, instead of breaking up the mob, arrested her as the crowd cheered. After a quick interrogation, the police threw her into prison. It's been four years, and Asia has not left the prison since. The article concluded by saying the situation is dire. Embarrassed by her case, but still refusing to release her because of angry protest, the Pakistan government has transferred her to a more remote prison, hoping she dies quietly behind bars, perhaps poisoned by another inmate. The story shocks our Western sensibilities. But what if this were you? You have been ashamed of Jesus in that, in the face of that situation, face of mockery, pain, or death. Sometimes we can think of that and even think that's easier than putting up with 
insults or mockery or laughing. This type of thing may in fact come to Canada one day, perhaps sooner than we know. Are we ready to follow our crucified Christ to the cross? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Jim Elliot famously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know how we live here. You know the luxury that we live in and the freedom that we live in. Forgive us for ever thinking we could do this life without you. I pray that you would allow us the blessing of suffering for you. Empower us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, follow you wherever you are. We thank you for setting the example for us in such astounding way, coming and dying for us. Help us, God. We need you. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's no better place to close today, I feel, than around the Lord's table glad it fell on this week. Remembering when Jesus denied himself, took up his cross, and was killed for us. So we're going to take a few minutes just as we close to contemplate and to celebrate the cross. Taking the bread and the cup to remember Jesus' broken body and the blood he spilled for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we'd ask you to refrain from this part of the service But take this time to think about what you've heard and consider following Jesus to the cross with your life. For it is only in dying to yourself that you will find true life. We'll sing as the bread is passed and then we'll partake.